Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. The average adult makes around 35,000 choices a day, from small choices around what to wear or what to eat, to major life-altering choices. In the end, our lives are defined by the choices we make. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Andrew Trees, who is the co-chair of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from November 1st to November 4th. In this week's episode, Andy will be interviewing Professor Marjorie Jolis. Marjorie will be moderating one of our November 2nd panels, Personal Choice and the American Dream. Marjorie will be talking with Agnes Callard, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago and the author of Aspirations, and Elise Miller-Larson, a graduate student in philosophy at Harvard University. Moving from the macro level of the earlier panels to the micro level, this panel would consider personal choice in the context of the American dream. Andy and Marjorie will talk about some of the Marjorie's own life choices and touch on a number of other subjects, including philosophy, shopping, and guilty pleasures. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to And Justice for All. I'm Andrew Trees, one of the programming co-chairs of this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference. President Malexaday has kindly turned the podcast over to me to talk with some of the people involved in this year's conference, which will be held from November 1st through November 4th. In this week's episode, we are fortunate to have a chance to talk with Professor Marjorie Jolis. She will be moderating our November 2nd panel, Personal Choice and the American Dream. She's going to be talking with Agnes Collard, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago and the author of Aspirations, as well as Elise Miller-Larsen, a graduate student in philosophy at Harvard University who writes on ignorance, a subject I actually know a lot about. Uh, Marjorie Gillis is Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Director of the Honors Program. She specializes in Western continental philosophy, particularly feminist philosophy and cultural theory. She teaches courses that have some of my favorite titles in the catalog. The Politics of Sex, What is a Family, and Fashion, The Politics of Style. Welcome, Marjorie. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So you are going to be moderating a panel on the power of choice, and I thought we could start by asking you about some of your own personal choices. I'm curious about the choices that led you into academia and also to your current position at Roosevelt. So I love the question. I think from a very young age, I was encouraged to ask a lot of questions. I think it was something that was rewarded, I suppose, in my family and in my school environments. Growing up as a Jewish kid, you know, taking Talmud classes and at religious school, I mean, I just felt that it was 
I felt that I had an invitation to ask a lot of questions. And so when I got to college, it really wasn't until I got to college that I understood that philosophy was its own domain. I think I'd had some contact with it in high school through a French language course. You know, I sort of in history classes and government classes and civics classes. But when I got to college and took my first philosophy class, it really was as if I had discovered the language I'd been <laughs> seeking my whole life. It was as if like, oh, if you like asking questions, this is your home. And there's no question to bizarre. There's no, like the, the more bizarre, the better. It really was a beautiful match of my, I guess my, my temperament and the, the discipline. So, I mean, I think I was maybe a month into that intro to philosophy class when I declared the major. I just, I just felt it really, going back to the question, it really what didn't feel like a choice. It felt like I had, a, I had landed somewhere that was so familiar and comfortable and exciting. So I don't know that I, I could say I chose it so much as I, I found myself there. And that major philosophy continued. It, it just never let me down. It continued to respond to my curiosity to give me more challenges. I never felt like I was hitting a limit intellectually at all. And I sometimes did. I, I, I searched out that feeling in other classes. I mean, I loved college. I loved everything about that bachelor's experience. But it was really in those philosophy classes where I felt like, oh, well, this is the language I've been speaking. And, and now, now I have like more tools with which to use it. So that was how I discovered my discipline. The choice to become an academic grew out of, so when I was a senior in college, like so many seniors in college, I started feeling like I, I need to know what I'm doing next. <laughs> <laughs> can and asking there, questions be a profession? <laughs> can I, right, right. I mean, I wish I'd had that clarity then. I'd, I kind of surveyed my immediate family, I mean, my world, and I thought, well, there are a lot of lawyers in the family. I thought maybe I'll apply to law school, so I did. And I don't know that I felt like I was dying to be a lawyer and to get training to be a lawyer. I thought, well, maybe this will be a place to channel this inquiry habit and training. And that summer, so when I graduated in May, my best friend and I took off and drove around the country for, for some time. And it was only when I got away from home, you know, away from that part, that region, really, and I can remember being in on this road trip and asking myself if I could invent a job. You know, I, I, it occurred to me, maybe I'm going about this wrong. I'm thinking about the jobs that exist and where can I fit myself into them. Maybe I should ask myself, if I could make one up, what would it be? And so I spent some time thinking about that. And I realized at the end, like, I think I'm describing a professor. I want to be able to ask questions for a living uh, with other people with other people. And I knew that I was sad that school had ended. So I thought, well, that's a clue. Like, I really want to be in a, in a classroom. If I could spend the rest of my life in one, that would be a great job. So that was what led me to, to the profession. And then what led me to Roosevelt was there was a posting for a job in women's and gender studies 
at this school. I was living and working in California at the time in a tenure track job. And when I read the description of Roosevelt University, I again had that feeling of like, oh, this feels like a home for like, I could just feel and see myself at this place. It really had so much of what I wanted. And we know about the academic job market. So I did not yeah. think I would even get an interview. Maybe I knew I, there would be loads of applicants for this one spot. And it really was just a tremendous stroke of greatness that I got the job. And that was 13 years ago. So I've been very happy at Roosevelt ever since. There are so many great parts of that story that I want to unpack. I love the fact you went on a road trip. To, it's like it's like the metaphor of America, right? You go on the road and discover yourself, right? You go on this kind of quest, fantastic. And then you stumbled. So it was like philosophy chose you, right? You came, you came to this thing and it was the perfect fit. It almost felt like home. But I want to go all the way back in because I thought there's this fascinating. I want to hear more about this. So you studied the Talmud when you were young. Like, so I don't know a ton about this, but this is that's like sort of intense textual study, right? Where you do these yeah. like deep interpretive drives. So that, is that correct, basically? Yeah. And let me be clear. I do not want to misrepresent myself. I don't want to. Yeah. I'm not trying to suggest you're a Talmudic <laughs> scholar of the order of. I don't know what. Uh, or like a yeshiva graduate. Yeah. No, yes, exactly. no, no. Exactly. But I love that you did that. So I'm curious. It sounds like there, I mean, from very early on, you did these things and maybe you were going to have to do that regardless. But that that strikes me as like kind of the perfect, you know, childhood or young adult thing to do for someone like yourself who ends up going into philosophy, right? I mean, that you're sort of doing kind of philosophy for young people when you do the Talmud, right? I mean, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, yes. completely wrong about no, that. No, 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 no. I mean, that was the experience. So as a assimilated American, second slash third generation American, Religious school was not my primary place of learning at all. <laughs> you knew that wasn't going to be the for... long runway. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I mean, so, you know, I, I, and, and so my experience of that education was largely, I have to say, unsatisfying. And mm. then I took the Talmud class and then I was like, oh, this is a whole different, I can be in this tradition in a very different way. So it was the contrast between rote learning Hebrew mm -hmm. for just a couple hours a week, right? And then this class, which was taught by the rabbi's wife. And I never, you couldn't have a wrong answer. It really, <laughs> and, and I think I was enchanted by the environment. So it wasn't that I, I can't recite chapter and verse. It, it really isn't about the text itself. It was the environment of, what do you think this means? Let's read it five different ways. What happens when we read it this way? What happens when we read it that way? And I couldn't believe I was not only allowed to, but really, you know, the, the, the more you did that, the better the, the experience. So it wasn't like, all right, Marjorie, like you're taking us off, off topic. Like, can, right. can, you, can you let someone else talk or can you, you know, return to the topic? That is the topic. The topic is interpretation. So it really was my first experience of, and just I think the, the culture of my family, you know, it was never, my, my, my questions were never a problem, I guess, you know, they, mm -hmm. so yeah, that was, it was the contrast between the rote memorization and then this space that I got to spend a few hours each week. And that was my first, because I, I can remember saying to myself, why does this feel so good? Why does this feel so different? I thought I hated coming here. 
but like I could do this, like I could stay for a few more hours, you know? So yeah, that's why it's memorable was how, how much of a contrast it was. That's fantastic. Especially when you're young, I feel like so often uh, teachers and students both feel like there's just supposed to be the answer, right? You're teaching me language, you're teaching me math. How do I get the answer? What's the answer? And I love the fact that you're getting this early training. They're like, maybe there is no answer. Maybe they're just more questions. What do we do with that? <laughs> yes. And that has been a foundation for my teaching. I mean, it really yeah. has. I think sometimes I can feel students who have come out of many years of being really encouraged to nail the answer. And then when I say, like, I'm going to like table the answer for like, yeah. let's just all of us put it on a shelf for right now and see like, what happens if we ask the question differently? And I tell them, you know, it's because I responded so powerfully to that invitation that I want to make sure you get that invitation too. Not everyone likes it. You know, I mean, I don't think everyone needs to have my experience, but it never left me, I guess is what I'm saying. And so now that I'm in the instructor position, you know, it, it, it still inspires how I think about learning, you know, that I think about inquiry first as opposed yeah. to mastery. That's fantastic. So you focused on continental philosophy in your graduate school training. First of all, can you just explain to all of us casual listeners uh, a little bit about continental philosophy and then how you ended up uh, studying that, focusing on that in particular? Yeah. So philosophy, Western philosophy has, I would say, two loose and occasionally overlapping sub-branches, traditions. Let's call them traditions. So the analytic tradition, which tends to be identified with Great Britain and North America to some extent. And the colonial outposts, so, you know, scholars in Australia and the kinds of questions and frameworks within analytic philosophy tend to have to do largely with epistemology, the study of knowledge, the scope of knowledge, what counts as knowledge, how do we know what we know, what can't we know, and philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. And all of that is mind-blowing and, and can be really exhilarating. Continental philosophy, which is largely associated with Western Europe, grows out of slightly different questions that just resonated more powerfully and more immediately with me. Questions about power and interpretation, the kinship with literature and cultural questions is closer, I think, in continental philosophy than it is in analytic philosophy. And then finally, I'll say academic philosophy departments tend to have a concentration of one or the other mm -hmm. for all kinds of idiosyncratic reasons. And so it just so happened that continental, I was, I was more exposed to continental philosophy. And so it just felt more like my primary language. And so that doesn't mean I got no exposure to analytic. It just didn't light me up in the way the questions mm -hmm. of power, justice, beauty. I mean, I was really interested in those questions, both as an undergrad and as a graduate student. And so again, like this idea that, oh, this is a familiar language to me. That's the through line with continental philosophy. And like I said, there are some areas, there are some really interesting areas where the two kind of come together. Like I would say the tradition of pragmatism is a good example mm -hmm. of where continental concerns and analytic concerns are both really alive and kind of mutually reinforcing. 
That's funny. So I was uh, in graduate school at University of Virginia and originally in the English department and my original kind of uh, advisor of the programs in was with Richard Rorty, who's the American oh. pragmatist, who's unfortunately passed away. But yes. uh, so and, and when I was in the English department, continental philosophy was all the rage, right? It was all about Derrida and Foucault. And uh, the funny thing was, and I feel like now it's critical race theory that's the uh, bogeyman of the right. But at the time, it was continental philosophy, right? Everyone's like, oh, Foucault and Derrida, these people are terrible. They're tearing down the Western tradition. There is no truth. We don't know what we're talking about. They're off. We need to get rid of them. So make the case for me of why this is not the case. They're not these, uh, these, they're not these Western civilization uh, you know, wrecking crew that's tearing down all about truth and beauty that we hold so dear. I love this question. It is a question I will relish answering. Well, first, let me say Richard Rorty is a true personal hero of mine. I feel like if I were to take contingency irony solidarity off the shelf, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a palimpsest of notes. It, it really, if I can name like in the top five of texts that completely shattered and rebuilt paradigms for me, that's uh, that's at the top of the list. I have um, to say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, so in taking class with him, I have to say he was, first of all, we, I'm a, you know, first year in grad school. What do I know? And we're all there sitting around the table talking with Richard Rorty and who knows, so smart, knows so much and was such a gentle, humane person, just inviting our own feedback, never tried to play the authority. I mean, he was just, it was really, he was an incredible human being. I'll tell you one funny story. So one of the classes, he picks up the book and he's like, oh, I, uh, is this someone else's book? And someone seems like, oh, I'm sorry, I took your book by accident. He goes, oh, yeah, I realized that when all the underlinings were in the wrong place, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. <laughs> oh, sorry, I interrupted. So you were going to say. Oh, that, no, that's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that only, that, that, that only adds to my, to my worshipful feelings about Rorty. Yeah, so, okay. So the question Make the case that the continental, yes. the 20th century philosophers. Right. Foucault and Derrida, they're not these, the just tearing down all that is good yeah. about Western civilization, that there's this really positive value in them. Yes, yes. So those thinkers were not making prescriptive claims. So when they said the Western canon is an arm of power. So when we look at Shakespeare or although that's an interesting case. But when we look at the canon of the Western humanities and we say this represents a certain moral and colonial and political point of view, we're not saying it's bad. We're simply describing what is. So I think that the mistake, the the condemnation of the post-structuralist theorists, this group of folks we're talking about, the continental thinkers of the mid-late 20th century, they wrongly get accused of tearing down the canon. They were not arguing the canon should be brought down. They were observing that power and knowledge and systems of justice and meaning-making and beauty and value, systems of value are not neutral. They weren't handed down by God or the heavens, that they are the products of people in time and place who were in a position to sort of interpret reality. And so I don't think those folks, if you read them closely, were saying, so, you know, a nursery rhyme is on par with Dante. 
I don't think they were, they get accused of being relativists, that nothing has value. If you can say value is man-made, therefore everything's equally valuable. And I think that's a misreading. I think what they're saying is value is human-made. I mean, it's a net, sort of it's what the existentialists say. Life doesn't have inherent meaning, but life is full of meaning because humans make it. And so to me, that is not at all a nihilistic or destructive view. I think it's actually an amazingly powerful view, meaning empowering. So human beings now know that lives are not something pre preordained and scripted for us that were resigned or assigned to live out, but that we actually play a pretty important role in endowing our lives with meaning. So I don't know if it was my interlocutors, you know, the faculty who helped me with these texts, who who brought about this kind of reading, but I never read those authors as tearing anything down. I mean, they are part of the canon, ironically. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they, they come out of those same traditions. Yeah. They were just observing that power takes many forms and one form power takes is knowledge. Yeah, I agree. My experience was that it was very enriching. Not that it would, they were, it was like, oh, these books are terrible because they have these things. It was like, no, these books are still great, but we've had these blind spots and here are these things in these books we didn't realize that reinforce power relations or how they prop up institutional structures or whatever. And I, I thought that was fascinating, right? I was sort of a, thought it was a really like open up this whole other way of looking at these things that made them even richer than they were before, for me at least. Yeah. I mean, I had that, that's, I had a very similar experience. I didn't feel threatened by it. And that's, you know, psychologically, it's, it's interesting to me who feels threatened by the critique and who feels let in by the critique. Mm -hmm. And it could be that I was so um, drawn to feminist frameworks and feminist perspectives on some of these big philosophical questions that I felt that those critiques were were in fact really consistent with with my interests in understanding knowledge systems of value. So whether that's systems of beauty or systems of justice, systems of right versus wrong, as being human artifacts. Yeah. Uh, so. I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know if I entirely agree with this, but I, just, I was thinking about it when I was thinking about talking with you. So in some ways, I feel like we've moved on to other things, but it, that, that Foucault, Derrida, people like this are no longer seen as the bad guys. And one of my thoughts is that maybe they're no longer the bad guys because they've actually won the argument. We've come to accept it as a society. So I'll give you an example. So uh, Foucault writing about the Panopticon, right? This prison where everyone can see everyone. And then the idea is you internalize your own policemen. And I feel like no one can argue with, in some ways, the fact that we now live in a panopticon society where we're always under observation, whether it's social media or whether it's the fact that there's surveillance cameras everywhere, that we've kind of become the society that he was writing about symbolically. And I'm just curious what you think of that idea. Andy, I could not agree with you more. When I said a minute ago, oh, I relish answering this question, it's because I think they were correct. I think mm -hmm. they were, like I said, they weren't arguing, they weren't advocating for the systems. They were, they were seeing them and describing them and their descriptions proved accurate. And I think one need only look at one's own wrist <laughs> at the surveillance <laughs> device that might be on your wrist. I mean, it's counting just, my steps right now. <laughs> that's right. And, and everything about, I think, contemporary politics, when we watch in real time, when someone from a White House podium says there are alternate facts, I just think these guys were onto something. 
Yeah. You know, so so I feel like they have been affirmed again and again. Their their critiques, their yeah. insights, their linkage of knowledge and power, their linkage of power's relationship to the body. I I have felt that they are as important as ever those critiques. So I have felt only more certain of my allegiance to that tradition of thought because it's proven so accurate. Well, you know, it's funny. I, so I, I'm guessing, uh, like all of us who go to grad school, whatever you're, you've been trained now to see the world a certain way, right? You become very sensitized to these systems of power or how language works, things like that. So I'm curious now you're walking down the street, you're going shopping, whatever. Do you constantly have that kind of running in your mind where you're looking at things? Do you have, can you give me some examples where you're like walking the grocery store and say, Oh my gosh, Look at them. I can't believe that's reinforcing this typical stereotypical view or whatever. I'm just curious how the what's running in the background of your mind when you're walking around. Yes. So I'm, I'm smiling because not only do I have that experience, but my students report it. And sometimes they're like, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It's kind of this class has ruined popular culture for me. And I always say, I, cl- this class is an anti-pleasure. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we're not about emptying our lives of things that bring us pleasure. But it does sort of, there's an innocence that one loses when one mm-hmm. spends all this time in these critical, these critical discourses. Yes, it's hard to turn that off and then be like, I don't know, I just like lipstick, right? As Right? That those, I, I, I don't have access to that anymore. I know, I, feel, I picture you going into a store and, and like getting some shampoo and going like, oh, I hate everything about the shampoo and the way it's packaged and what it's say about me as a person, but it really makes my hair look good. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to suck it up and buy it anyways. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I, I have a way, a way to manage this crisis that you're describing because, and, and it's not a way of resolving. I, I wouldn't say I'm resolved because I don't think anyone living in this era, I, I don't know that being super comfortable and resolved is, is, is is available to many mm-hmm. of us. So I've I've let go the fantasy of total resolution and purity. Like I and what I say, and when students say, like, but I still really like Real Housewives of Orange <laughs> County. And I say, great. Think about your think about the great questions you're going to be exploring when you watch it now. So it isn't about a censorious pro- prohibition. You know, I, I don't think feminist or cultural studies are advocating that we purge the society of pleasurable but complicated, you know, right. tricky texts that used to bring us pleasure in one way. And now we've woken up to, mm, I'm not so sure I'm down with the fantasies that that thing once, you know, the, the fantasies of my beautiful princess life that the shampoo used to inspire in me. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's over. But I'm really interested in these questions about like, oh, my life is really mediated by brands, right? So, so this, this goes back to the first topic of conversation. Like if you really embrace inquiry as a way of life, I really think it becomes kind of inexhaustible. So yes. So, and the last thing I'll say is in my fashion class, we take a consumerism field trip and we walk up to water. Well, we don't walk up. We go to water tower place and then we spend like two hours walking around. We do little anthropological studies, students have their notebooks and I give them a set of questions to, to ask themselves. And the questions are really, they're questions like, what's the dream? You know, like, what is the dream of this store? 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the dream of Victoria's Secret is really different from the dream of Bed Bath and Body Works or whatever it's called. Right, right. Different from the dream of or the Ralph Lauren flagship. Right. Right. And and I say so. And like, what does it smell like? How cold is it? You know. So so um, if anything, I think I'm trying to keep these sites and texts alive and rich and relevant to students and myself. I mean, right? Like by getting curious about the fantasy and the dream and the pleasure, the pleasure, making pleasure mm-hmm. an object of inquiry rather than like, am I allowed or not allowed? Right. I think that's the wrong question. It's really the wrong question. I mean, let me say everyone's allowed pleasure, right? But asking yourself, like, what's the source of it? What does it tap mm-hmm. into? And then if it's like, oh, it taps into sexist fantasies, and I don't think I'm comfortable with the sexism that I had internalized in a lot of my life, well, then it's an opportunity to kind of rethink it. Mm-hmm. I, I need to go shopping with you, and I can't believe I'm saying it because I really hate shopping, but I think I might enjoy it with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you the questions. I'll send you okay. the prompts. <laughs> well, so now I'm going to flip to the other side of the questions. We're talking about pleasure. So I was curious to ask you what your guilty pleasures are, because I think we assume, especially someone with your training, teach what you teach, that you would have, I mean, I shouldn't say this because it gives Puritans a bad rap because they really were much more open to pleasure than we give them credit for. But what the, that gives you the Puritanical mindset where you're like, I don't read that, or I don't watch that, or I don't do this. But I feel like you, I'm sure you do have your guilty pleasures that you are aware of critically, even as you enjoy them. So I'm curious what your guilty pleasures are. I'm fixating on the adjective guilty because I don't know. Are you past guilt? I'm not. I have plenty of guilty pleasures. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I'm definitely (laughs) not past guilt. I'm thinking, how would I distinguish? Would I say my obsession with design and fashion Mm -hmm. is a guilty pleasure? I really am and, and have been lifelong i've been fascinated by the process and and project of the packaging of self and mm-hmm. the choices that we make that don't feel like choices you know it's not that we stand in front of a closet for hours doing a deliberative deep deliberative process we grab it we put right. it on we go but there is the self is under constant construction and reconstruction And I've been fascinated by that for a long time. And I think at different times in my life that did feel like, like a vanity kind of like, like a, like a, there are bigger things in the world kind of, you know, like really your fashion is all about the surface and like the planet's on fire, you know? And I don't think it's all about, I guess I don't accept the premise that it's all about the surface. And that's my, that's how I deal with my guilty pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> of, and I it think isn't it's, even a consumption. I mean, it isn't even about, it's not that I have an overflowing closet. It's about, I can't get enough. I read interviews with designers. I hear them talk about um, how they understand a moment in time, how they understand post-pandemic, post-recession, or, or you know, all the different ways that people whose job it is, is to sort of crystallize a mood and make it material. You know, like I, I, so I was a, in college, I minored in art history and I really debated what a life around artists, might I pursue a job in museum studies, you know, mm-hmm. could, could curating be a path for me? So these really have been deep preoccupations for a really long time. So I would put that maybe in the guilty pleasure column because, because there is a world, the planet is on fire and it's pleasurable 
for me to to learn about and see and touch you know the 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 texts literal and 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 i guess metaphorical I mean, it's funny as you're as you're talking about i feel like um guilty pleasure maybe doesn't apply to you i think because you bring that critical mindset to it you're aware of the suspect or the problematic aspects of the pleasure in ways where you're, you're past the guilt. You're aware of it. You've decided, I, I like this, and here's why I like it, but I'm aware of these other things. Maybe my the reason it's my guilty pleasure is sometimes I do these things that have these sides that have their icky aspects, and I don't examine them, right? I like I don't really want to look at that and know because yeah. I'm enjoying this thing. That's why yeah. I feel the guilt. It's my denial about what's going on underneath the surface of the text. So this, yes. has, been a good, this has been a good therapeutic session for me. <laughs> I think I've learned something about myself. <laughs> So glad I could help. Yes. I think it could be that I've spent, you know, I've been, I've had three faculty positions and they've all been in women's and gender studies. So I've been able to be a philosopher, but in this space that is explicitly about some of these questions. So the questions mm -hmm. really, and the, 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 they really are central. They're not something I get to in my, you know, maybe that, that fourth class, right? Mm -hmm. Really. It's at the center of the work. And so what you're hearing is probably ways I've been re wrestling with these questions for literally decades and also with students. I mean, students bring these same questions to, to their, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm glad because I think better to, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's always better to, I mean, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's always better to kind of lose your innocence and then have that next round of, of, of critical probing than to be fully innocent, I guess. Yes, I would agree. And I have to say, I, and this not to make a plug for what we do, but I think in some ways that's the great thing about going to college, things like a liberal arts education is that you do lose your innocence in a way, but I would say in a good way, right? It's, uh, it's not the kind of complete destruction of the sense that there's value in the world or whatever, but in this, this way where you realize there are it's much more complicated, but there are important things to think about and that you can ultimately kind of reach maybe a better view of things, even though it's not that simple one you had when you were younger. Right. I think even the phrase loss of innocence, I mean, it's all about the loss. There's no acknowledgement of the game. Right. That there's a game. Right. There's a game. Right. And right. right. And so, you know, loss gets tempered by, I mean, that's what makes loss, I guess, bearable is that there's something that replaces it. It's not, a, it's not the same. But we 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 accommodate ourselves. Right? We we grow in. We we figure out a way to live with that that loss. And so maybe maybe I mean this is my therapy session because you know I'm <laughs> sharing with you how I turned fifty this year. So that you're you're getting a very a very wistful version of me because I've been taking stock of my life <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I've lost and what I've gained. <laughs> <laughs> this this actually brings me back to the conference, right? So you're going to do this panel about choice. I'm curious, two questions. So yep. I'm curious what you're interested in talking to the panelists about. And I'm also curious how you see the idea of choice fitting into the idea of the American dream. Well, I'm really interested in talking to both panelists about how much agency is involved in the lives we wind up living. So um, how much do we choose our path? So I know Professor Collard has this book, Aspiration, which is about making the decision to become different. So I feel that we get cultural imperatives to change. You know, we're told all the time, you're a little bit broken, you need to be fixed. Oh, and here's this product, right? Um, so there is a cultural imperative to keep 
changing and improving. And so that's like an external force that, of course, as you're talking about Foucault and the Panopticon, it becomes my own. I don't feel it as external. I now have an inner mandate that, you know, whatever this is, is not good enough. It's got to get better. And then there is that different feeling of, I want to be like that. I see something outside of myself. I know I'm not there yet, but like I want to be. And that is what I know. I mean, Collard has this elaborate inquiry into that, that sort of segment of the process of change, the the identifying and being the, the not yet self. There has to be some of that not yet self present in order to name it in the first place. It, it, mm-hmm. if, if, under a certain understanding of choice, if choice yeah. is really rational and prospective. So here I am right now thinking about something that I want to happen tomorrow, right? That is one understanding of choice. And then I'm going to make a decision. You know, we can think about choice that way. And we can also think about choice as, well, I don't want to do that. You know, kind of like, I don't think I want to be a lawyer, (laughs) right? I mean, that's how it began. And then I was like, oh, well, then maybe I need to come up with some other possibilities because I can't do nothing. You know, when I think about who I was at 21, Nothing wasn't an option. So, right. I mean, and in way, in many ways, that's a choice too. And I didn't want that choice, so I had to figure out what what within this field of options, because certain things are unavailable to us at, for, for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. So, I'm really excited to talk to both Professor Collard and. Uh, Elise Miller Larson about how they understand the role of personal agency, personal decision making in the ways that lives unfold. Because we're not authored by ourselves only. You know, we're really at best, I think, jointly authored creations by relationships we're in, by our circumstances, by our historical moment. And so I just I I can't wait to just hear them sort of enter that question. And then you'd asked about choice in the American dream. Yes. That is maybe a harder question because the American dream is an idea. The realness of it is debated, of course. You know, it's sort of a contested idea, which is why I love our conference because it's the American dream reconsidered. It's a critical engagement with this concept as opposed to well, we all know what it is and we all know it's real. And now let's just talk about how great it is. It's, it's, it's a much different take on the American dream. Yeah. So the relationship between choice and the American dream, I think, is a toggling between those master narratives, those cultural narratives. If we can say the American dream is one of those, it's mm-hmm. powerful, seductive, not fully false, not fully true, aspirational, beautiful, right? Like it, 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 it's so seductive. And it has been, one could say, even an accurate narrative for a lot of people in this country and outside this country, that you can start over here and end up over here. And it's through your ingenuity that that happens. That, that middle piece, that it's through your ingenuity that it happens, to me, that's where all the exciting questions and and all the action is. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, I hope that the panel really digs into this question of how much of the American dream is mapped out for us, who is 
positioned very in, in a very distant relationship to it, who is really right up close to the American dream, you know, who can achieve it and for whom it isn't a fictional aspirational thing, but actually um, a trajectory that they fully mm-hmm. expect to follow. So I guess the two the two questions are linked for me. How much personal agency can we attribute to our lives and to the achievement of this this destination of having made it, what, what, however we define that. Well, I have to say, I'm very excited to hear what the answer are to those. I think that sounds like a fascinating panel. It has been so much fun talking with you today. So for those of you listening, if you'd like to listen to this podcast or any other podcast, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcast. Please come to the conference. It's coming from November 1st, to November 4th. If you want to see a full schedule of the events, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash American Dream. Marjorie, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.